1: Today, as part of our series on science in the USSR, I'm delighted to say that we have an interview with Simon Ings, the second part of the interview. He wrote a wonderful book on this subject that's really, really good Stalin and the Scientists. He started his career writing science fiction stories, novels, and films. He's written a book on perception, about the eye. He's written a book on 20th century radical politics, The Weight of Numbers. One on the shipping system, called Dead Water. And augmented reality, Wolves. And to all the topics he covers, he brings just a depth of research and a brilliance of writing that makes it a joy to read. He co-founded and edited ARC magazine, a digital publication about the future, before joining New Scientist magazine as its arts editor, and you can find his writing in there, reviewing galleries and books and everything else. And he wrote Stalin and the Scientists, which is what we're talking about today. He agreed to be interviewed for our little show, and I've split the interview into two parts. This is the second part, which focuses on genetics and Tropim Lysenko and people like that. I hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoyed having it. So the discussion of Lysenko and the ideas of people using the purge for social mobility in Soviet science brings me on to my next question. One of the characteristics of the Soviet state is a sort of chaotic social mobility. It's something that you don't see so much under the Tsar, or or less chaotic systems of government. But if you look at the leaders, even, Stalin was from a poor family in Georgia, Khrushchev, his parents were poor peasants. They can both rise up to run the show. And at the same time, the existing echelons, the existing hierarchies are being smashed by the revolutionaries. Competent people who disagreed with the regime or got in the way of some ambitious young communist career, they'd be denounced as saboteurs and traitors. They'd lose their positions. And that means that it was a great opportunity in all walks of life if you want to get ahead. You just had to be a very devout communist. But, for example, in academia, someone who's older than you in the academic hierarchy, who holds the prestigious professorship or whatever, they can be denounced as a traitor, an old-style proponent of bourgeois science. Yet the revolution against bourgeois science could also result in some pretty wild and incorrect ideas coming to prominence. In science, we all know that there are types ranging from well-intentioned amateurs through crackpots through to con artists who will spread incorrect ideas for various different reasons. But it's also the case that many of the greatest scientific minds have come from humble origins in societies with less mobility. They never really get the chance to express their genius. So which kind of effect is dominating? Did you see this theme of elevation of humble figures to positions of prominence or influence? And was it merit-based? Did they deserve it? Or was it otherwise? Was it because of their communist bona fides? I think Lysenko especially is a good example Because he is the poster boy for many of the errors of Soviet science.
0: Yeah, Um, there's several answers. I'm sure we'd be delighted to hear that there are several answers to that question. So I'll I'll, I'll try to keep each of them brief. Um, First thing to say is that. As with every revolution, when the revolution happens, the smart money gets out the smart money gets out if it possibly can. Um, so the world's first experiment in scientific government began life with almost no scientists. They <laughs> had almost left a mass exodus of the intelligentsia. As a consequence, people who had been ignored under the uh, by the czars, by the tsarist regime for the very good reason that they were as mad as a bag of cats finally got their day in the sun when they approached the Soviet authorities and said I'm doing this wonderful work I was il- always ignored by the uh, always ignored by the czars uh, let me let me run a research department. And quite often these people were handed money, resources, not so much money because there was none, but certainly resources, buildings, equipment in order to follow their own hobby horses. And a lot of the, the horror stories and the amusing stories about Soviet science come from these crackpots, essentially. You know, there's, there's no denying that the um, uh, crackpots were given their day in the sun. This is incontrovertible. On the other hand, a lot of their, um, they they weren't just promoted because they happened to turn up on a wet Monday morning and people were bored. They did speak to areas of scientific practice that were sorely undeveloped. They had, over the years, learned... uh, uh, political stratagems for for getting support from the the new government they had learned how to portray themselves as radicals so even with the crackpots when you look at them, you can learn something useful about what the state was trying to do so for instance you have um, various uh, agricultural um, uh, hobbyists who um, Ivan Michurin, being being the the, the the classic example, a, a plantsman who uh, basically created no useful crops, but had an idea that he would breed crops that could grow in uh, cold territories, dry territories, um, um, ill fertilized and sort of unfertile territories, and so he is the sort of rather clownish poster boy for a movement that was genuine was sincere and in elsewhere in st petersburg and in moscow created a world-beating uh genetics movement um soviet genetics when it was allowed to flourish was specifically targeted at producing crops that could flourish outside the belt of black earth on which Russia more or less depended for its food supply. And the effort to create new um, species, new, 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 new varieties of crop led to a flourishing of genetics that was so impressive that the Germans were borrowing Soviet, scientists in order to improve their genetics departments because they wanted to get into competition with the americans and they thought well we're so far behind we're going to have to reach for the soviets because they're much closer to american levels of understanding of this of this material than we are Um, a lot of these young men particularly in genetics which is where the book comes to focus but for quite a while were sincere Bolsheviks who came from humble beginnings and they came up through Bolshevik schools, Bolshevik uh, universities and institutes and uh, departments and intakes that would not have happened had it not been for rather draconian Bolshevik laws about how universities took in students and it was chaos and it was messy and it was ugly and at the same time, you look at these people and you think these people would not have stood a chance without this radical policy transforming education and taking control of the universities and running the universities as a kind of government department. And people, people did emerge from this environment that you, you, you have to take your hat, hat off and say, uh, and say, thank goodness for that. Because Solomon Levitt, was profoundly influential in the development of population genetics he came from nowhere israel agol similarly in um psych in psychology and neurology you have alexander luria who came from well not from nothing but um he was uh hu- he hugely benefited by the educational opportunities provided by the bolsheviks and, you know, he not only invented the Soviet line detector, but he was also the father of neuroscience. Um, he he was the first person to really begin to understand how functional systems in the brain would work together and were not entirely localized within the brain, but were but worked on a series of hierarchies. And he's the first person to do that. Um, I could list any number of examples of, you know, young men and young women who took mostly men i have to say um who were in a position to take advantage of um uh, bolshevik uh, educational policy um in the end though you have to say well is this just bright people taking advantage of chaos or is it bright people taking advantage of an enlightened system and i think it's both to be honest um, I think it's both i don't think you should ever discount the sincerity of the Bolshevik effort at universal education. It was quite extraordinary, but at the same time i don't think um by the same token i don't think you can discount the fact that when all the uh, old men have left, the young men and some young women will step in to take their place, and the best of them will 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 seize the advantages that are afforded them by people having vacated their position it's such an interesting
1: dichotomy because some of the people who ended up in very high positions in soviet science really shouldn't have been there just as others benefited from the education they got from the soviets so let's talk about lysenko as this example he was this peasant farmer who was a hobbyist agriculturalist and ended up occupying a quite important place in the soviet system
0: yeah, he didn't really have the luxury to be a hobbyist. He was, uh, you know, he was a son of a peasant who was struggling to um uh, make ends meet and to make a career for himself. And initially he did rather well. He 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 went on correspondence courses in the middle of the Civil War. Um and he was uh researching um vernalization. Vernalization is this business of treating crops with Uh, different regimes of temperature and moisture in order to get them to behave differently. And this was particularly exciting in a country where large amounts of, uh, say, autumn wheat, autumn crops uh, generally, uh, would die of frost. If you could get um, these high yielding but rather risky crops to grow in the spring when there was less chance of frost, then you could potentially hugely increase your um, agricultural output. And this would be magnificent, there would be more food. And so uh, Lysenko was researching vernalization. The, the idea didn't originate with him, of course. The idea is old, uh, it goes back to the 1890s. Um, and it's true, uh, vernalization works. Uh, and we're only now in the in, you know, in our in time of um, epigenetics beginning to understand why it works. But it was a it was a mystery that was recognized and unpickable until very recently. The problem with uh, Lysenko was a um, was personal. Uh, it was a, a flaw in his character that meant that he could not bear any kind of criticism at all. Which is really bad for a scientist. <laughs> it's bad for most people, but really bad for a scientist. Um, and as a consequence, a newspaper journalist turned up from uh, the um, uh, Leningrad, Investigator. And um, did a nice puff piece on him, saying, "Oh, he's he's doing this really good work, and he's you know he's he's keeping data, and he he's a son of a peasant, and he's taken advantage of the educational opportunities afforded him by a great and glorious Bolshevik state. This is kind of cool, isn't it? And It was, and he was doing good work. But unfortunately, this this perfectly you know straightforward puff piece." Uh, for the newspaper went completely to his head and after that there was no stopping him and he would never take any kind of instruction or criticism. He never wrote a scientific paper. He never recorded any kind of data uh, ar- ar- around his experiments um, and should really have just gone to the wall and been forgotten. I mean, you know, someone who's who's that cack-handed at, at what they're supposed to be doing should really have been forgotten. But the reason that this didn't happen was there was such an appetite for vernalization to work that one experiment that his father conducted actually got reasonably good results. It was purely anecdotal. There was no data to go with this. And it was taken up by the minister, uh, sorry, the commissar, as it was then, the Commissar of Agriculture, um, who had previously been the editor of the Russian equivalent of the Farmers Weekly. Uh, and used to fill his pages with, um, we need to increase food production. Anyone got any ideas? So of course, every peasant farmer across the Russian Empire would write in saying, well, you know, if you plant on a wet Thursday, you know, and everyone sort of contributed their ideas, and that newspaper that was after a, um, sort of sensible ideas created a kind of atmosphere of slight hysteria. So the editor, his name was Yakov Yakovlev, splendid chap, fascinating chap. He crops up in Time magazine, believe it or not, around, the, around that period. Was absolutely delighted to, you know, get out from under the Farmers Weekly and actually take over the, the, the ministry, if you like, and the commissariat of agriculture, because, you know, now he could do things properly. He wasn't simply asking for ideas. He could actually set up experiments and trials and this was wonderful. And he thought, you know, not not unreasonably. And this will this, you know, this is a very familiar idea. Let's have a kind of citizen science. Let the citizens contribute the data that we need so that we're actually getting what we would now call, you know, rather lazily big data. We've got the we've got whole Russian Empire. Let's get big data from the whole Russian Empire. One small problem. Yakov Yakovlev, fan of science supports the idea of citizen science what's not to like what's not to like is that he's not a scientist and he has not the first idea how difficult it is to create a um a, a questionnaire so he sends questionnaires out to um a, a relatively small region saying okay please do this with your crops treat them uh, treat them with cold temperatures um, come back to me and tell me how the trial goes now everyone is drowning under bureaucracy at this point because there are no institutions there are no schools there are no roads there's no money there's only paper the whole state is being held together by papers going back and forth and so the people who are running the uh, collectivized farms are generally just throwing their hands up and going oh what's this next piece of paper oh five stars Get it off my desk. And so they done everything with a positive review. Now, in the end, people are sending back positive reviews because if they don't, they get into political trouble. But this is before that. This is just drowning in paperwork. Everyone is sending a positive review back about this small experiment in fertilization to which Yakovlev responds. Oh, that's fantastic. We got a 100 percent success rate. This is brilliant. Let's roll this out over the Ukraine. <laughs> and eventually across the entire Soviet Empire. And everyone falls for this. Everyone. People who should know better fall for this. Um, uh, Nikolai Favlov, who's running the Bureau of uh, Applied Botany, who is an extraordinary administrator, extraordinary bureaucrat, and has gone down in history as the, the great 20th century scientific martyr, because in the end he, he, he dies of starvation in a Soviet prison standing up for genetics, standing up for scientific precision, standing up against the um, the, the bureaucrats who are just generating this, what is essentially money-wasting garbage, but are in a higher position than him. And so, uh, you know, after, after his job, uh, in the end, after his life, even he falls for fertilization because he spent, the last 20 years going all around the world the Pamirs Morocco Syria Ethiopia there's a seed bank in Ethiopia uh, in Somalia that he set up which I visited it's really really quite cool so anyway he spent 20 years gathering these exotic plants he's brought them back and various government critics are saying yeah was this a really useful way to spend all this time and this money when people are starving and so he's under pressure. And he's saying, well, look, I've got these wonderful exotic varieties in the hope that some of them will grow in Russia. But actually, the Russian environment is so hostile, none of this stuff's going to grow. So unless vernalization enables me to produce variants of the crops that I've gathered, all my work would have been useless. So he falls in with this. And so there's this extraordinary logic ladder develops Um, so that um, Lysenko is carried along by other people's enthusiasm. And he's carried along to the point where he's become a figurehead and he's a useful tool for Stalin to make political inroads against bourgeois scientists, the bourgeois scientists who are essentially running genetics, running the genetics departments. Never mind that the, the really bright minds are committed Bolsheviks. The people who are actually running the institutions are naturally enough older and so naturally enough not bolsheviks They're, you know they're a previous generation um and so lysenko is this extraordinary tale of how the um the, the cults of optimism the, the cult of optimism will, will will send someone to the um you know the top of the tree and he was in an incredibly precarious position for his entire life until Stalin fell and Khrushchev came to power. And unlike Stalin, Khrushchev believed it all. He believed everything that Lysenko said, because unlike Stalin, Khrushchev really was an ignorant peasant. Sorry, there, I've said it, he was as I believed everything that Lysenko had come up with, which he himself was parroting from his father. But it's this, um, you know, over the years of Lysenko's career, the idea of being a peasant scientist became concentrated on the idea of homegrown genius rather than on the idea of self-improvement. And you get characters from history being thrown up as fathers of Soviet scientists after the event. Almost everything that everyone knows about Ivan Pavlov was invented by the Soviet state after Pavlov's death.
1: And he was a figure they quite wanted to co opt initially.
0: Oh, yeah, but it was so much easier to co opt him after he was dead. Because you know, when he was alive, he used to do things like stand up in the middle of meetings and decry the entire regime. <laughs> I can get away with it essentially and you know fellow colleagues were deeply annoyed by him by saying yes he can do that he's got a Nobel Prize if we tried that would be you know would be straight in the gulag essentially
1: yes I think Lysenko's career fascinates me so much because of all the politics behind his rise in many ways he's this perfect model of a Bolshevik citizen scientist coming up with this homespun wisdom in a way a ragged-trousered scientist from the peasant class who also has a lot of ideas that are against what bourgeois scientists believe. Politically, he's a useful tool, and he also embodies the desire amongst Bolsheviks for their scientists to be very goals-focused and not so much about pure research for the hell of it. His desire is, you know, let's find something we can do that boosts grain production by X percent, and it fits with the target mentality that the Soviets had, Everything's about targets and how you can fulfill them. But there's politics in his rise as well, as well as the fact that his ideas fit with the Soviet view of science and technology. So you talked a bit about the genetics debate. There's originally in Russia a very big group of talented geneticists. The theory of evolution is widely accepted at this time, but the idea that genetics and natural selection are the mechanism by which evolution happens is still not accepted everywhere. This is this idea of genes being the cause of inherited traits. There's people saying things like, how can a single gene from a member of the population disseminate itself around the whole population? It'd just be like a drop of ink in the ocean, you know, there's no way that a single mutation can lead to a whole species changing. Instead of this genetic view, the people who believe in evolution have the ideas of Lamarck, that evolution arises because of traits that creatures acquire in their lifetime that are passed on to descendants. So for example, the giraffe has an incentive to stretch its neck to become longer, so that it can reach the tops of the trees. And gradually, over many generations, the giraffe's neck becomes very long, so that it can reach the delicious leaves on the tops of the trees. But there's no genome, there's no information here, there's no mutation in it. There's just traits that are acquired during life that are passed on. These ideas still had a lot of currency, even though in a lot of ways you can think, well, How does this work? You know, if your physical body changes, you don't pass it on to the people below you. You don't, you know, give birth to children without arms if you lose an arm or anything like that. But but these ideas still had a lot of currency. So in some sense, we had the politics of Lysenko the man that led to his rise and him becoming impossible to criticise in a lot of ways. But there's also a politics to his ideas. Saying that things happen because of natural selection and Darwinian competition is quite capitalist that this is the mechanism that drives improvement, and also the idea that your fate is set by your genes, it, it, it's not as egalitarian as it might be. You compare that to Lysenko's ideas, that individual plants can sacrifice themselves for the good of the rest, for example. That's an idea that has a lot more political content that's sympathetic to the Bolshevik cause, even though both of them might seem at first glance like scientific ideas. Would you say that politically useful ideas are an example of why he was so successful for
0: so long? It's true to say, Darwin himself was uneasy with early genetic ideas and in, um, um, on occasion quite persuaded by Lamarck's theories because, baldly stated, genetics is really problematic. We've grown up, you and I, in a world where genetics and evolution seem to be part of the same argument. But what we tend to forget is that we are standing on the shoulders of intellectual giants who took a good half century trying to work out how these ideas could be at all compatible. And you've hit on the, the the biggest difficulty with genetics from an evolutionary point of view which is if one individual has one genetic change it can't possibly spread through a population uh, directly um, it will simply be absorbed in the way that a drop of ink will be absorbed by the ocean now this is true if, if the, you, you cannot expect one individual to extend the gene directly through a population through their own, you know, personal virtue and fitness. Uh, it, it took um, a chap called Chet Verikov, uh, working with um, uh, a, another Russian geneticist called Sara broski to start to unpick this business of population biology, which is that a genetic mutation will occur and will remain in the genome unexpressed until such time as a small a population small enough to interbreed will throw up and express that that mutational change. Most of them will be inutile, but occasionally one will be useful. And that's how you end up with chaffinches with different beats. It's because the chaffinch populations in Galapagos are so separated are um, so isolated from each other that all these genetic variations will get expressed in all these different groups it doesn't really happen with um you know antelope for example you're not going to get massive variations in uh, antelope on one continent because they tend to to graze over large areas but you are likely to have an eye ibex in one place and a reindeer in another because those groups are separated now the mathematics of that the hand waving is easy mathematics is screaming it's a screaming nightmare and there was one thing that Lysenko could not do to save his life and that was mathematics he was mathematically illiterate what made it worse was that the chap who was working with him, Isaac Present who was um, an ideologue and philosopher, he too knew no mathematics and in order to sustain his um, uh, professional standing he had to oppose the use of mathematics in biology and he would stand up and say that the use of mathematics in biology was a, um, a politically retrograde step, it was the, the forces of reaction were using mathematics to to sully biology which had nothing to do with mathematics and it all gets com- completely crazy I have to say um, but to get back to the point the idea that um, living living things will um, pass on acquired characteristics to their progeny was so much easier from an intellectual, from a mathematical point of view, to explain how species change and speciate and adapt. Um, That is a much, much simpler way of looking at the world. Um, and it has, you know, it has a certain beauty. It has a certain elegance to it. Plus, you've got things like um, vernalization, which suggests that actually, uh, c- crops are, sorry, living things are to a certain degree plastic. If only we knew how to treat them. So there is evidence for uh, Lamarckism. And when you start the, to develop your 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 theories, most of the evidence that that we now recognize as evidence of of uh, genetic mechanism, a, a dyed-in-the-wool traditional 19th-century Lamarckist of good intent and real intelligence can take that same evidence and with complete intellectual rigor and honesty use that same evidence to argue for Lamarckism. <laughs> it's really hard to, to see where genetics fits in. The other problem was political and that is if um, genes are uh, there is a genetic mechanism that is material that is chromosomal that is not a not a statistical effect but it's an actual physical mechanism of genes lined up on a chromosome that means there's a finite number of them and if there's a finite number of them that means there's a there's a finite number of ways in which um, a living thing can pass its genes on to the next generation. So for the early, um, uh, for the early researchers into this idea, it was extremely uncomfortable, this notion that, there can, that the genes can only throw up a certain limited number of variations. For a start, that doesn't tie with the evolutionary record you know nature has not run out of ideas yet quite the contrary there doesn't seem to be a, an upper limit to the number of variations that a species can go through there's a lawfulness to it but you know we don't keep getting the same individuals again and again so that's the first problem we, we you know it, it it doesn't feel right from from the evidence um the second problem is 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 much more political and that is well, we're just at the point where we've sorted out infectious disease, trauma, um, and now we're looking at constitutional diseases, diseases of process, diseases that you can inherit. Now, if the um, if there is an absolutely rigorous, contained, boxed-in mechanism of genetics, there's no way in for therapeutics there's no way in for people to deal with conditions like cystic fibrosis and parkinson's and and and, and all the others Um, so it's very uncomfortable for a for a doctor who's a sincere um, uh, bolshevik to say well i can maybe one day come up with a cure for flu but i'm never gonna come up with a cure for um you know, a, 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 a an inherited condition. Um, there's 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 no way in now. Unpicking that one happened during the during the 1930s, right in the middle of the purges. There was a moment of uh, a, a, an intellectual ferment and a huge argument, fascinating argument, proper argument, not not shouting that argument, argument, between uh, Serebrowski and Agol and levitt and these 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 sort of towering intellects of of soviet genetics that were saying well um, we we're beginning to realize that genetics is mathematically sufficiently complicated that there is wiggle room here that we're not talking about shuffling a finite set of cards we're talking about a, a much more complicated system that has to do with the way that genes are expressed in the environment and the, the, the mechanism can work, and what's extraordinary is that at the very moment when um, the knives were out for anyone with an education, a couple of sincere Bolsheviks who had embraced Lamarckism, which was essentially the the official version, the officially recognised model of the of the way things work biologically, turned around and said, actually, those capitalist Americans have understood it. They understand it better than we do. They've got the answer, and we're going to research it. Um, One of those men, Solomon Levitt, created one of the most important units of human genetics, well, the first really good department of human genetics doing twin studies, going through um, birth records, searching out the genetic basis of certain conditions, working out how many genes would be involved. Very, very, you know, crude by, by today's standards, but absolutely foundational work. He was shocked. In the, he was shocked.
1: It's a tragic story, and it kind of brings us to an intersection of Bolshevik politics and society, which is this resistance to outside influence. So when we're talking about the concerns over genetic diseases and therapeutics, it makes you think about the eugenics debate which was going on in the 1930s. The Nazis were, of course, very much in favour of controlling human populations, and I guess the study of human genetics was warped by them into an excuse for sick, discriminative policies, and eventually for, for the Holocaust. And it was, in some sense, the embrace of eugenics by the Nazis, although the ideas were popular in the West too. yeah.
0: Yeah, American idea originally. <laughs>
1: that led to the Soviets rejecting genetics and genetic determinism, and rejecting the study of eugenics in particular. You might naively have thought that eugenics would be popular with the Bolsheviks because they kind of wanted to engineer society, they called their poets engineers of the human soul, they had these idealized versions of perfect citizens. Where and they had things like the Stakhanovite movement, where dedicated individual workers strive to perform these incredible feats and so on. So, if you have got this view of a perfect society with perfect workers and things like this, then you might think that they'd be in favour of eugenics to create that society.
0: It is, uh, yeah, it, it, it's it's one of my my pet bugbears actually. Um, I'm, I'm trying to rescue the word eugenics <laughs> Single, single-handedly and against the world. I'm determined. Because, of course, the, the uh, Department of Human, the, the idea of calling um, the study of human genetics, human genetics and not eugenics was Soviet because and it was it was a decision made by um, uh, made by Solomon Levitt, who realized that eugenics had become a dirty word because of the um, uh, use to which eugenical ideas were being put. Um, by the america well uh, by um uh, uh, by the americans and then by the um the danes and the and the, and the germans um eugenics itself simply means human genetics as far as certainly uh, that's the way the, the 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 soviets took the term uh, and understood the term and in terms of engineering new people um absolutely i mean that's what the national health service does um and this is this is what we're for the whole National health service is predicated on eugenic ideas which is that you you educate people not to spread um dangerous genes between them and you you give proper you give proper advice to people uh with conditions so as uh, to limit their spread um this this goes on. This goes on every day. This is this is an enlightened policy, and this this enlightened policy was developed primarily by Soviet scientists who were to a to a man extremely critical of the use to which eugenic ideas were being put um, um, in, well, particularly in uh, California, particularly in Arizona. Uh, but also in London, uh, also in other places in Western Europe and, of course, Germany, you know, to, to say that um, people with existing conditions ought to be exterminated by one form or another, not necessarily by murder, but by uh, sterilization is the classic one, and that only ended in the 1980s in some parts of the world, you know, depressingly enough. Um, so, yes, sorry, I interrupted you. I, I heard the word and, and, and ran for it like, you know, a dog with Pavlov's bell. Suitably <laughs> <laughs> <to> be
1: enough. <laughs> yeah, it's just the extent to which this was political. The repression of ideas of forced sterilisation and so on that had currency in Western societies and that happened in totalitarian Nazi Germany as well.
0: Yeah, that's... That was never going to happen in Soviet Union because they needed more people, not less. It was never going to happen because there was, you know, you'd just gone through a civil war. You'd just gone through a war. You'd just gone through a revolution. You'd just gone through two or was it three catastrophic famines in a famine-ridden land already. There was never any appetite for negative eugenics. None. From no one. Oh, no. There was one paper which was roundly criticised and the chat disappeared. Um... He wasn't, you know, he just, you know, as far as I know, he just stopped working in the area. He was, he was not disappeared, as it were. He just he, he just fell off the radar. There was never any appetite. But of course, that didn't stop um, the Stalinist regime in particular uh, from using negative eugenics as a stick with which to beat its political opponents. It could turn around and say, um, you know these um, uh, these these geneticists are clearly um crypto fascist simply associating one group with another and you know to begin with there was there was a genuine debate um and there was genuine frustration with some of the uh, older bourgeois workers in genetics who were doing um, studies at um, studies, genealogical studies of famous Russians and, um, you know, uh, Russians of accomplishment. And there was real frustration on the part of um, the, um, the sincere Bolshevik wing saying these people are successful and intellectually erudite because they've had the, the social advantages. You're not actually doing correct scientific work you're you're assuming that everyone starts on the level playing field and this playing field is so not level it's a joke and people got angry about that and so that that's a really interesting part of of, of doing this book actually was to tease out the the genuine criticism and frustration from the um the politically expedient attacks and what's what's moving is to find people who were absolutely at the forefront of attacking men like Nikolai Koltsoff for doing rather bad bourgeois science. These are the people who go to the war with him in the nineteen thirties and defend him to literally to the death, because in the end they're on the same side and they're on the same side of actually, you know, throwing ideas at the world and seeing if they work, you know.
1: So scientifically, we must see a chilling effect because you have this presence of the NKVD, and the idea that if you're unpopular, or if you annoy the wrong people, you could be denounced as a traitor, and potentially even arrested and executed. At the same time, politics impacts science because the USSR becomes very isolated. Ideally, science is an international enterprise, with as much collaboration and open access to data and research as we can possibly get, but if fraternising with foreigners marks you down as a traitor, it's a lot more difficult to go to conferences and do things like that
0: yeah and yeah and that was the big problem with genetics of course because it only works if it's international in the early days because you need to carry flies from one country to another you fly stocks you need big data you know use that word lazily again i'm sorry um in a minute i'll say curation my head will explode you know god will strike me down um (coughs) for using such lazy terms but you you need a lot of data and you only get that if you have departments all over the world working on the same stock of flies and you know see the same stock of drosophila and, and and seeing how they behave in different conditions and that's what really um you know that's what really ended genetics in the soviet union in, in the end it wasn't an argument about genetics versus um the inheritance of acquired characteristics um it was about were you going to have an international pluralistic international science of free conversation or were you going to have a science dedicated to the um, celebration of quintessentially Russian genius and Stalin was a nationalist in a way that even you know that that Lenin wasn't Um, and his nationalism once applied to science, pretty much ends scientific discourse for several, you know, for, for two generations. There is another aspect of this, which is weirdly and sort of darkly comic, which is that if you have a state that regards itself as scientific and regards all vocabularies as getting simpler as science, science develops. see, this is the odd thing, because the sciences are all going to interconnect the vocabulary should get simpler. Whereas
1: Everything should be understandable by the man in the street.
0: Anyone who's lasted this long in this podcast will know that before you develop science, the you know the terms get really, really bizarre and stupid and crazy and incomprehensible because because that's what we really what we realise now science is. It's not going to interconnect. It's just going to get crazier as time goes on until only the AI's can do it. Um, so. You have a state that wants to be a scientific state, but thinks that thinks the vocabulary is all going to get easy. And so when scientists use their own vocabulary, the, the Bolsheviks say, no, 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 we'll use the words of Marxism. We can apply Marxist vocabulary and the vocabulary of um dialectical materialism to everything. See, this was the idea. They would take this great bit of hand-waving by Friedrich Engels and apply it to everything so everyone was all the same language. It was a kind of Esperanto. So as a consequence, it's very difficult sometimes to tell the difference between a, a, a scientific disagreement and a political row. And after the war, after, the, after people had gone through the Second World War as well as the purges in the 1930s, the people still in post in the university, they got wise to this. And so when it looked as if another crackdown was coming, they staged their own coups. They staged their own coups, and they staged these incredible political meetings where everyone was, in, uh, as far as the transcript goes, everyone screaming at each other, and you say, my goodness, they've all gone, you know, crazy. They're, 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 they're vicious. They're stabbing each other in the back. What's going on? This is worse than 1937. And then you dig a little deeper, and you go, yeah, but no one died. Where did this stand ch- end up who was, who was excluded from his department? Oh, he ended up being promoted. <laughs> what happened?
1: Mm-hmm. There was this one case you talked about where they basically just shuffled all of the staff around after politically attacking each other, and then nothing actually happened. It just looked like a purge.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Look as if yes, exactly. You you make it look as if there has been a purge. You make it look as if this political process is going on. Of course, this is this is fantastic in terms of not killing people, and keeping your department running, and you know maybe getting a new job, maybe knifing some some colleague in the back, but without actually sending them to the camps. You know because you know everyone you know, everyone wants a better job. Um, and this is the way of actually normalising things, create this this camouflage, this screen of, um, um, of political chaos and, and, and political infighting. But, of course, it makes it unbelievably difficult to find out what is actually going on in the department research. It must
1: have been fun researching
0: that. I've lost years of my life, you know. Even though i you know, this is a, this is a, this is a generalist book, and you know, minds better than me have done much of the heavy lifting. Even then, it's still, you know, wrapping up the stuff is incredible.
1: Yeah, I suppose a good way to do a bureaucratic purge by quota is to just declare that you've fulfilled your quota.
0: Absolutely,
1: yeah, yeah. So the last area I really wanted to touch on before we wrap up and try to conclude, although of course we could go on for hours talking about this stuff, it links Stalinist science back to the physics. One of the reasons I got so interested in this era of history was reading Montefiore's book, The Court of the Red Tsar, and there's a very excellent quote in there that is the title of a couple of my episodes, We Can Always Shoot Them Later. That refers to the treatment of physicists specifically when the Soviets were developing the atomic bomb. And it was, you know, you had this NKVD system headed up by Beria, who is widely and with merit considered one of history's worst sadists. And he had this entire shadow state of the NKVD secret police. The gulags were in effect their own economy, and they had their own technical and scientific production wings. In some ways, this was what allowed them to build great cities like Magnitogorsk and huge engineering projects like the White Sea Canal with slave labour, but they also made use of the old bourgeois specialists from the previous generations uh, by keeping them in these prisons, Shiraski. Sometimes there were entire secret cities devoted to nuclear research, which were known as atom grads, where scientists were in this strange state. They were essentially held prisoner by the regime, and they were forced to work on military weapons and scientific R&D and the bomb, but... Otherwise they were treated quite well, better, much better than the gulags. There's an excellent quote from Stalin and the scientists about it. Quote, A former Sharaska worker, Leo Kopolev, understood the logic of such places. They grab him by the scruff of the neck, drag him to Lobyanka, Le Lefotvoto, or Sokanavar. Confess, bastard. Who did you spy on? How did you wreck? Where did you sabotage? They lower him once or twice into the cooler when it's freezing, when there's water in it. They'll hit him in the face, the ass, the ribs, not to kill or maim, but so that he will feel pain and shame, so that he will know that he is no longer a human being, but a nothing, and they can do whatever they want to him. And then, after all that, they will give him a magnanimous ten years in the shiraska. No days off, vacation is a foreign word. Overtime is a sheer pleasure, anything's better than sleeping in a cell. You chase away the faults of freedom, of home, they only bring you depression and despair. In the Shiraski, they address you by your name and patronymic. They feed you decently, better than many eat on the outside. You work in warmth, you sleep on a straw mattress with a sheet. No worries, just make sure you use your brain, think, invent, perfect. Advance science and technology. So I found this to be a fascinating story for the human experience of these scientists working on the atomic bomb and the incredible mix of emotions they must have had. Some of these scientists despise the regime, and as soon as Stalin dies, they swear off ever working on the bomb, like Landau did. Others believe that, actually, the USSR getting the nuclear bomb is the only way they can maintain peace and stability, because they think that without that, there's no balance. If you can have an atomic monopoly, as you have in the US, it's more dangerous than a duopoly, because there's no mutual issue or destruction, there's nothing like that.
0: Yes, because everyone else has nothing to lose. (laughs) <laughs> the whole of the rest of the world is facing annihilation and has nothing to lose so you actually get more conflicts rather than less there was an incredible yeah I was just going to say there's, there's an incredible account of a conversation uh, in New Mexico uh, among the, um, the, the United States um, workers on the, on, on the US bomb and among them is a chap called Klaus Fuchs and Klaus Fuchs has been working he's a, he's a German émigré who had gone to the UK, had worked on the UK's uh, project, had then been seconded to the American project. And what nobody knows, in the, who's around the table, and this is people like Oppenheimer, you know, and this, is, this is the high-level stuff, because Fuchs is a fantastic physicist, really, really smart. And he's, you know, he's working with Oppenheimer and these people. What nobody knows is that Fuchs is a Soviet spy. It's a sincere, sincere Bolshevik who wouldn't wouldn't even dream of taking payment for, for his work, which is not only the work of a spy, but also creative. He makes genuine contributions to all three bomb projects, the Soviet one, the British one and the American one, because he has an idea that parity You know, Now that this is here, it's not going to go away. We have to have some kind of parity and we have to maintain parity. And there's a conversation in which Oppenheimer of all, but Robert Oppenheimer says, you know, I really think we should give this data to the Soviets because they're smart people. They'll be able to come up with a bomb. It'd be much better if we give them their data so that we got the bomb at the same time and the whole table is going yeah I know you know if only we can get past the generals we really think the Soviets should have this information and the only person not to be speaking around the table is Klaus Fuchs who's just quietly hiding in a corner being <laughs> not going to say anything because that's exactly what he's enabling um, The the Russian bomb is in the end a copy of the American bomb because they can get the bomb faster that way but nobody nobody thinks that they couldn't have built their own bomb. they they had the talent they had the, they had the data they just didn't have the time it was it was better to copy the american one and spend too much money doing it so that you could get parity faster um the uh, shurashki you know only an engineer could have invented this idea i'm sure enough you know a bunch of uh, soviet engineers who were facing the gulag wrote to beria and said please don't send us where it's cold if you'd only let us work on the you know work on our own projects just put us just stick us in a prison somewhere warm with a good supply of paper and pencils and we will deliver the following three projects we've spoken amongst ourselves and we reckon we can we can deliver these three industrial targets um, and it's, it's strange. It's a strange, almost touching throwback to Tsarist days when, you know, Tsarist um, uh, exile was almost a gentleman's agreement. You know, you could choose where you were to be exiled and you would get a you would get a dispensation. You would get money. You would get money paid to you sometimes. You know, you get a stipend. Um, so these people, are, you know, still almost sort of harking back to that to that regime and saying, look, let's make a gentleman's agreement that we will do this if you incarcerate us somewhere where we're not going to have our feet falling off. And Beria, uh, Beria agreed and found himself with a golden goose, because um, certainly come the Second World War, where you needed to uh, regiment as much as possible your industrial effort and your intellectual effort for the you know, for the war effort. The Shrashkis were brilliant. They were cutting... Their record, their R&D record was unbelievable. Um, huge, you know, something like a third of everything they worked on actually went into the field. A 33% success rate for for R&D is incredibly good.
1: And on the timescales that we're talking about as well.
0: Yeah, yeah. So they were effectively, you know, the, the, the Americans had the Boeing Skunk Works, or was it Lockheed? No, it was Lockheed, wasn't it? Sorry.
1: Lockheed did a lot of stuff, yeah.
0: Lockheed, yeah, the Lockheed scant works and, and the Soviets had um, the Sharashki, And conditions there were, were really quite bizarre. Um, because these prisons were constructed so that bourgeois, politically suspect bourgeois professors could work at peace and in freedom without having any kind of Political agency to defy the government. The conditions were surprisingly good. Um, you would end up working with a in a remarkably well-resourced environment in the middle of nowhere, where. There was barbed wire around the island, but the island was on one of the most beautiful lakes, and you could get a pass to pop into town. Um, they were often run by people who were themselves suspect. Um, they were they were run by people who had one way or another fallen foul of the regime, so they were no longer in the centre of uh, the, the centre of political machinations in uh, Petersburg and, and Moscow and one of these chaps, an economist who knew nothing about genetics, ran a sharashki and gathered the the surviving generation of geneticists who had been thrown out of work um, uh, and and, and thrown out of post and often thrown out of their homes uh, in the 1930s, and he gathered together the most extraordinary flowering of genetic, Soviet genetic talent since the 1920s. And these were the people who refashioned genetics as cybernetics, so that when Stalin passed and Khrushchev uh, came to power, they were able to sell genetics as a kind of biological cybernetics and, and, and was Restored to to a degree, and very slowly and painfully, and with lots of setbacks. So the Sharashki, these prisons, were in fact um, islands of intellectual freedom, and were civic inst- uh, were civic institutions in their own right. And this is why you have this the peculiar cultural phenomenon of the the Soviet dissident, as described by um, um, Sakharov, who says, science, you know, I I have worked most of my life in these Sharashki, these specialist prisons, and I see that, you know, it is important for, you know, science is in the central, um, is in the central component of civic life, and only the scientists remember what civic life is. Now, of course, there's a dreadful irony here, because that's true for his experience. But what he's almost saying is that if only government could be run scientifically, we wouldn't be having the problems we're having. <laughs> You're thinking, no, no, you've missed the point. That would be the last thing we must do, um, because scientific government can't work. because It's always putting a model between itself and reality. You know, politics has to be brave. It can't be run on evidence because the evidence doesn't come from the future. It comes from the present and a really complicated present at that. So even if you had a perfect AI reading every bit of data in the world and modeling it, it still wouldn't be making sensible decisions because it doesn't know what's going to happen tomorrow. You know, I'm, I'm with Lee Smolin on this one. Time's real. <laughs> Time's real. And you're just going to have to come up with a good idea and hope and and, and argue. You know, there, there is no scientific no way of doing this job. Um, you, you're surfing in a world where time is real. You're surfing a real process, and you're just going to have to deal with it. Um, so, yeah, the Sharashkis were, were a strange, uh, a, a strange quiescent, but intellectually remarkably powerful force, and of course industrially quite powerful as well. I mean. Uh, quite a large amount of Soviet GDP in the end was being generated by these by these prisons. And it's it, the saddest thing aside from, you know, setting aside the human stories, which are often tragic. The saddest thing about the sharashka I think, is that it demonstrates the failure of the Bolshevik um, dream of universal education, because in the end, they weren't able to train up their own generation. To take over from the generation before,
1: and they needed to imprison the generation before them just to get results.
0: They needed to imprison the generation before exactly, and I think that's, you know, I I, I, I genuinely find that very sad. I carry, you might have gathered, I carry no flag for the Bolsheviks, but you know that is genuinely wrenching to see that that part of the dream fall away.
1: Because that's one of the part of the system, the dream that a lot of people would have sympathy for today. When you try to disentangle the different aspects of the Bolshevik experiment, I think
0: that's true. I mean, there was always the desire to. Russian government has always run into problems when it deals with the fact that it's dealing with such a large population, and it's a large population that survives through it's it's technically speaking it's not subsistence agriculture, but it's very close. It's collective agriculture. It's it's was enslaved for hundreds of years. It like any slave population, it that's done its character no favors, quite frankly. Um, You know the the large portions of its populace are not only you know ignorant breeds. um, Ignorance breeds viciousness, and you only have to read Tolstoy. You know, part of Tolstoy's stories about are uh, about you know uh, about what to do with the viciousness of the uh, of the the Russian peasant temperament, and you see that viciousness in play during the civil war, and you see it in play when when uh, uh, members of the peasant class are are put in charge of collective farms. It's real. It's unpleasant. It's... And when
1: there's this de-kulakization occurring, and people in villages and communes are turning on each other as well. There's a certain viciousness there as well.
0: Yeah, yeah, no. And, and, it's, and that, you know, those, those processes are dictated from the top, but they are made so much the, the initial the initial decrees are their viciousness is ramped up with each level of bureaucracy you move down. That viciousness is real. And I don't think, certainly at the moment, I, I think, you know, basically we don't have the vocabulary to deal with national character, class character. I think we feel very uncomfortable uh, uncomfortable about those ideas. Um, and, you know, often with good reason. But there is a, there's always been this problem of what do you do with a peasant class? Because it's so vast and so ill educated And, you know, these guys not only have no schools, we have no roads, <laughs> you know. We can't can't build a school because there isn't a road. Um, And so everyone from Catherine the Great Down has reached for a kind of Prussianization, the Prussian solution, a desire to regiment, to be a tutelary state, to take these people and somehow regiment them into a new state of being. And, you know, the worst thing, you know, the, 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 the really killer line you can deliver on Marxism um is that it's not about making life good for people it's making it's making people it's making life good for how you want people to be it doesn't deal with with real people and you see that played out at at human scale again and again in russian history and bolsheviks were were no different they reached for a For the solution of of regimenting the state in order to deal with so many people they needed to educate so quickly. And yet, you know, some of those, some of the early ideas, this is the thing, you know, the the early ideas died the death, so you don't see their shortcomings. But some of the early ideas are just enchanting. There's a chap called Alexei Gastev, who started as a poet, but all credit to him, he was a poet who actually did used to work in a factory. He was a fitter in a citron plant in Paris. Um, And he.
1: And he wrote this extraordinary poem about the morning whistle that's in your book. I remember that well. And now at eight in the morning, the whistle sound for a million men. A million workers seize the hammers at the same moment. Our first blows thunder in a chord. What is it that the whistles sing? It is the morning hymn to unity. A little bit is lost in translation.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, he came up with these poems in which people would melt and melt together into a gigantic machine. And um, the commissary of education, uh, Lunacharsky, once wrote a letter to say, look, are you serious about this? I'm not, I, I I don't know whether this is a good thing or not. And, you know, Gastev being a good poet never, never replied because of course, both. it wasn't stupid. Um, but he gave up poetry in order to create what were uh, th- uh, the first? Well, he created biometrics. He was creating these almost dance classes to show peasants how to behave in a factory.
1: Trying to work out the ideal swing of the hammer to bash in the nail.
0: To work out the ideal swing of the hammer. All this stuff is 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 in the textbooks. You know, it's the voice of all this stuff. To- Really, really important. We we understand so much about physiology through the through the institution that Gast set up, and within that institution, the work of uh, Nikolai Bernstein. Um, and so, you know, this idea that you could teach people a new way of living through through motion, through dance, through through poetry, through music, and that these 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 um, these disciplines would work together to create the new Soviet person Homo Sovieticus it was a remarkable dream um, and again all the really good ideas that came out of it have since played out not in, not in Soviet culture, they in ours we've inherited it we've inherited these good ideas and we think they're ours and they're not
1: this is really the generic final question that you expect me to ask you but I'm going to ask it anyway It's difficult to assess the legacy of Soviet science. After Stalin's death, some of his personal favouritism and bias went out of the equation, but Soviet science remained this strange mix of incredible innovations and, well, embarrassments. How would you assess the scientific legacy of the Soviet Union? And what would you draw out as
0: lessons for us
1: in our time?
0: I think the primary lesson to to take away from this is not the strangeness of soviet science but the degree to which it shows up formal problems that are not going to go away there's no way that you come away from you know even the most cursory study of this period with an idea that the soviets were uniquely wrong about anything there's a there's a particular concatenation of historical circumstances that make the period horrific and you know the 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 personal agency of joseph stalin is something that is is not applicable to this podcast but you and i and everyone else listening to this knows is is important here setting that aside what you're looking at is the attempt of government to develop a new relationship with its science base and the fact is that that relationship will always be contested because you know no working scientist listening to this will have not had problems getting past the um um uh, getting past the board trying to get money for a new experiment you know we've all received those letters through from the personnel department headed you know words like attaining excellence with impact you know that that's a quote that's not me making it up that any attaining, attaining excellence with impact that was Manchester University hello Manchester. Um, you know, we we've all been there with people saying that oh, we have to we have to do more outreach and we have to communicate uh, with uh, with with industry and we have to work more closely with industry and we have to apply our work and what are the likely deliverables of our work? You know, the, the, those are the those are the pressures, and they're no different now to what they were then. And frankly, if we were all living in a country that's starving with an impoverished soil and a deteriorating climate, you know, it wouldn't take us long to uh, face some of the, the some of the tragedies and atrocities and nightmares that the Soviets did. And guess what? We're living in a world with a deteriorating climate and a decline of fertility. You know, all the things that were visited upon. Russia, in 1917, are about to be visited upon the globe. Really, well, they are already being visited upon parts of the globe. And do we really think that we have a bet that our politicians understand what science is better than they did then? I don't think so. I think we're just more ignorant. To be perfectly honest with you, I, I think our politicians are more ignorant because after the First World War, and this is, this, is, this is me spinning off slightly and then I have to excuse me. But the, the thing about the Second World War is that it created a, a, a fascist pattern of the state that everyone has pretty much adopted, which is that the political class can speak directly to the mass media without any intervening, um, any intervening academic input. We're seeing that now. Now, Stalin is the, the extreme case of what it's like to have academic input because he was an expert in everything and it drove him crazy. He had to show expertise in everything because he was the last of the 19th century philosopher princes and he thought that if he did not have expertise in every area that he dealt with, then he had no business sitting in the chairman's chair and it sent him crazy. And so that's the nadir the Nadia. 19th century scientism you know i'll I'll leave it to you to judge who's the nadir of 21st century crypto fascist or immensely fascist way of government at the moment where where politicians speak directly to the mass media and everyone else is a is a is a supplicant and my politics changed over writing this book because i realized that i was i was coming around to the view that Scientists should be given money with with no um, uh with no strings attached, which of course in a democracy is impossible because it's it was money. <laughs> you can't just take someone's money out of their pocket and then hand it to someone with no strings attached. But science works best that way. Horribly, I mean you 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 get lunatics and mountebanks taking advantage of that system, but in the end. You you do best when you leave people alone. Prison is trash. You could, you could imprison them, or you could send them off to a skunk work, But people are are best left alone, and that's incredibly difficult for a for a democratic government to do because it's not their money they're spending; it's yours and it's mine. And that problem is a formal problem. It does not go away. It does not go away, and there will always be that tension between science and politics. And you know the the Soviet balance was was not good and there are many factors that went into what made it so deleterious for for soviet science Uh, i you know i genuinely think that the lack of a retirement age was a really really big problem and simple practical things are a problem in terms of how i judge you know, if if you can do such a sort of grandiloquent and, and conceited thing as sort of judge an entire science base of a, of a world empire, you know, half a century later, um, I think tragedy does outweigh the triumph. There's there's no there's no two ways around it. Um, I think that there are certain habits of thought and a certain um iconoclastic approach to problems which is valuable but i don't think it requires a particular political system for those those values to be expressed i i think it 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 takes bravery quite frankly and it's the bravery of a of a state that has gone through so much to to try and build a a better world, which is extraordinary. And of of course it's tragic, and of course it goes wrong, but it's, it's the bravery of people that sticks with me.
1: There's so much human experience and so much of a legacy to assess that it's quite difficult to summarise it in any way. But I guess I liked how you ended the book by saying that these challenges haven't gone away, and that you feared that, in fact, we won't
0: acquit ourselves nearly so well. I fear, at the moment, the way the world is going. Um... That we won't. We will make new mistakes, but they're unlikely to be easier mistakes to live with.
1: Well, on that very optimistic note, Simon. <laughs> <laughs> well, my listeners are used to it by now. The last few episodes have been about the end of the world. Excellent. <laughs> I'd like to say Stalin the Scientists is a wonderful book, and anyone who listens to this podcast is bound to enjoy it. And thanks so much for agreeing to be interviewed. It's been a really fascinating discussion
0: ever so much it's been lovely to talk to you thank you ever so much
1: that was the second part of the interview with simon ings thanks again to simon for coming on the show he's so so knowledgeable about, about the subject area it's just incredible and it's a wonderful book obviously you can tell i'm kind of fascinated by the ussr as well so i hope that everyone has uh, got an awful lot out of that and uh, they should definitely you know if you want to find out more about simon's work you can buy star and the scientists online and at all good bookstores There's so many different anecdotes in there about how people lived, how the people did their science in the Soviet Union, what it was like, the various arguments that people had uh, scientifically, philosophically, and some of the human stories as well. He's very good at weaving in those stories throughout. And he's online at simonings.com and tweets at Simon Ings. Thanks for listening to this episode of Physical Attraction. We're going to have a few more episodes that are sort of in the Teot-Wauki specials, Uh, that are going to talk about existential risks in general, where we are now, and maybe even the end of everything. Uh, Some general observations. And then, finally, we will move back into physics, and we've got all kinds of things coming up there. We've got Newton, we've got thermodynamics, we've got all sorts of stuff. So if you've enjoyed this episode, please tell someone about it. Tell your friend, tell your parents, tell the man on the street, tell the woman on the street, tell anyone you see. Wear t-shirts that tell people to listen to the show. Anything you can do to help us spread the word and ensure that more people listen is all worthwhile. If you want to support us, there's a PayPal link that you can do on the Twitter. We've got a Patreon, although, you know, I don't think anyone goes on that, but it's patreon.com slash physical attraction. And you can buy old episodes of the show. You can buy archive episodes, and special episodes, including the one about aliens. Um, you can buy that at www.physicspodcast.com where you'll find the instructions. Uh, on that website, you can contact me. If you have any questions, concerns, any topics you want us to cover, anything like that, you can contact me there. And another good place to grab hold of me is on Twitter, because I'm always on there. That's twitter.com physicspod. Until next time, take care and don't wind up in the shiraski